Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. I think it's fair to say that Henry Kissinger was the most famous and controversial American diplomat of the 20th century. He's been both praised and condemned for the roles he's played in many of the important matters of foreign policy over the past six decades. Diplomatic historian and distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University, Thomas A. Schwartz, presents an in-depth and measured view of his subject in his latest book, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography. It's published by Helen Wang and brings Professor Schwartz to our show now. Welcome. Well, well, thank you. Yes, thank you for having me on the program. You say that uh, Kissinger is neither the great statesman of his many admirers nor the evil war criminal of his many detractors, and that you hope to write dispassionately about a man whom some call a war criminal and lump together with figures like Slobodan Milosevic or Pol Pot. Do his successes and failures balance each other out in the, in the Middle East, in Vietnam, the Soviet Union, China? Well, that's a good question. Um, obviously, I I think uh, that I don't know that they. Uh, I think some that to some extent, whether you see them as balancing out may depend on your perspective about American foreign policy and what America has tried to do in the world or how it's defended its national interests. I think that uh, they have to be seen as part of a larger process of the United States. Uh, emerging as a world power after World War II and conducting foreign policy around the world and playing a role that uh, is recently really under question, playing a role, a, a dominant role in world politics. And I think I, I, my own my own sense is that not that they balance out, but that they have to be seen um, as as connected and, and part of a larger process and that uh, there were some real achievements. There were some also some terrible failures and tragedies. So. Hey. And you're right that Kissinger was and is, quote, brilliant, devious, suspicious, arrogant, insecure, obsequious, paranoid, thoughtful, tenacious, domineering, vulnerable, direct, deceptive, insensitive, eloquent, petty, turgid, witty, and thin-skinned. That's a lot to consider, but it sounds like the negatives outweigh the positives. Well, there are a lot there, and I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. I mean, those are adjectives he's been used. But he's also, as, as I say, he's a brilliant figure, but he's a complex figure. I use the uh, uh, the Greek uh, concept that Hans Morgenthau used of a polytropos, uh, a many-sided figure, uh, not easy, to, in which some of the good and, and bad are intertwined so much that it's impossible to separate them. I do think, I mean, he is a fascinating figure, and he was a dominant figure, and like all characters of that type, I think there are all sorts of ways of looking at him, and I try to try to bring them all out, but it, it, it's challenging, to put it mildly. And you argue that, although most writings on Kissinger have focused on his role as a foreign policy intellectual, that's only mm -hmm. part of the story, that he was also very much a political actor, a politician, and someone who understood how foreign policy is shaped by domestic politics, although he liked to portray himself as someone who is above domestic politics, independent and nonpartisan? Didn't he also use ingratiating and fawning praise of the president as as a source of power? Absolutely. No, I think I, I, to the extent that uh, there's any reason for another book about Henry Kissinger, I make the case that there's a need to look at him as a political actor and figure. 
And I take on this point because I do want to get at a larger question, and that was actually in the origins of the book originally was to use biography as a way of getting at American foreign policy and how American foreign policy is actually made. And that, in effect, um, Kissinger is someone who also um, understood that domestic politics and the competition at home for domestic um, advantage was an important ingredient for how American foreign policy is made and conceived. In, sen in a sense, I'm, I'm borrowing from Tip O'Neill that all politics is local. To talk about foreign policy as all politics ultimately comes down also as domestic, too, and that there's a, uh, a way in which Kissinger, who did pride himself on these sort of larger geopolitical and strategic notions, also was someone who um, worked in terms of a, uh, uh, a political process and understood that this would affect the elections, something that he learned very much from both President Nixon and Ford. And you have called this book a political biography, not a biography. Yeah. I interviewed him twice, so mm -hmm. I have some personal opinions about him that I may share later Absolutely. in our yeah. discussion. Um, yeah. Wasn't he suspicious of Actually, your I motives think, I, when you interviewed him? Go ahead. What were you saying? Um, I think I was going to say you probably interviewed most of the people I discuss in this book. Um, a lot of them. So I, I was just I was paging through and then uh, your your list of people and uh, you you have interviewed many of them and I saw that you had interviewed Kissinger. Yes, he was suspicious, and that's a complicated story because my advisor, my initial my doctoral advisor was a rival of Kissinger's at Harvard. Kissinger is terribly distrustful of most historians who he believes are on the left and want to criticize him and portray him in negative terms. Um, he's particularly critical, it seems, of American historians, um, and he selected as his um, own somewhat authorized biographer, although um, I think he has a fair amount of independence, he selected the British historian Neil Ferguson. And mm -hmm. in a way, he, he does have that suspicion of, of uh, the American, that American historians tend to be much harsher on him. The bulk of your book covers Kissinger's government service when he became National mm -hmm. Security Advisor in 1969 and then uh, Secretary of State in 1973 for the Nixon-Ford administrations. And you, and you only cover the first 45 years of his life, from 1923 to 1968, in just 64 pages. Uh, but maybe mm -hmm. we can just discuss it for a moment. He came here at the age of 15 as sure. a refugee from Nazi Germany, mm -hmm. born in Bavaria. Uh, he never lost his accent, although um, most 15-year-olds do. Uh, he was studying mm -hmm. accounting at New York City College when he was drafted into the U.S. Army in 1943, and he served in the, the Army during World War II with a, and had a rather impressive military career. Uh, so mm -hmm. all of that would suggest that he was uh, somebody who was going to move on to, to greater things, the reason he dropped accounting as, as a goal? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, well, I think I think his story, and, and let me explain in part, the reason the, the first chapter is so short is that there is a 900-page book on essentially mm. the early life of Kissinger by Ferguson that came out about five years ago. Um, I had to cut a lot uh, out, and part of that, my editor wanted it shorter in one volume. Um, it's but still I a pretty big a book. time on some of these issues. Well, yeah, I know. Um, my, I, I, I did spend a lot of time on these issues. I do see Kissinger's sort of transition from accountant to uh, a person who saw himself wanting to, to exercise power 
comes in part from that military experience that I think also shaped a whole generation of American men who served in the military during that time and were sort of open to a larger world. And, and in Kissinger's case, also received authority. I mean, Kissinger was in command of German cities as a, as a part of the mm -hmm. occupation force. I mean, it was extraordinary for a man who was only 20, uh, at the time, only 21, 22 years old. But he spoke German, unlike a lot of the other people that in is his right. company. That's right. Now, That's right. so he didn't go back to City College. He went to Harvard, uh, received uh, his mm -hmm. A.B. degree, summa cum laude, in political science there. Uh, and what do we what do we learn from reading some of the things that he wrote, like that 400-page college senior thesis on Spengler, Toynbee, and Kant? Do they reveal the man who we are later to know as a, a political uh, figure? Well, let me let me argue this in in the sense that what I say in the book is that certainly I think you learn things. I mean, he's an extraordinary, thoughtful, and and this is an interesting thesis comparing these philosophers. But I think it's it's dangerous to over determine um, his subsequent actions from uh, his college thesis. In, in many respects, his college thesis, and here I agree with Ferguson, is an effort to impress his mentor. Um, yeah. uh, 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 and, and in effect, also enter graduate school. And while it was uh, this extraordinarily lengthy thesis, so much so that Harvard passed a rule later called the Kissinger Rule, limiting <laughs> undergraduate honors thesis to 100 pages um, and, and prevent the, any future uh, situation like that, um, I don't think it's as, as quite as revealing as many think. I, I do think Kissinger obviously thought deeply about uh, the philosophers he wrote about. He was particularly taken with uh, Kant. Um, and and Kant's, uh, Betty of Kant's ideas, but I don't think that necessarily uh, is the key to understanding him in, in his later policies. What about his doctoral dissertation, which was titled Peace, Legitimacy, mm -hmm. and the Equilibrium, where he first introduced mm -hmm. the concept of legitimacy, which he defined as, quote, legitimacy as used here should not be confused with justice. It means no more than an international agreement about the the nature of workable arrangements and about the permissible aims and methods of foreign policy. Well, that uh, mm -hmm. does sound like yeah. uh, the Henry Kissinger we, we've come to know. It does, but, you know, once the again... The whole of legitimacy uh, and that, that, that uh, questions about, of public opinion yeah. and morality are irrelevant? Yeah, but... You know, the, the Henry Kissinger, who actually only a few years later was urging much more vigorous action to liberate Eastern Europe, who supported German reunification, who took other positions during that time, is not necessarily consistent with that. And here I think you have to recognize that Kissinger, yes, he, he did have a, a perspective on foreign policy, but it could be changed and modified depending sometimes on the political needs of the person he was uh, advising on foreign policy, in this case, Nelson Rockefeller, for example. So I do think you have to be uh, a little careful about uh, overly determining Kissinger's views from his intellectual writings. His intellectual writings are fascinating, and certainly he has made it a point to talk about these issues like legitimacy, world order, uh, realpolitik, these things. But it, that doesn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily define why he the types of advice he offers or uh, policy prescriptions he favors. He entered politics as the foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaigns of Nelson Rockefeller in right. 1960, 64, 68. And in 68, 
didn't Kissinger call Nixon the most dangerous of all the men running to uh, to have as president? Yeah. That that despite the fact that after Nixon became president in 1969, he appointed Kissinger as national security advisor, and they became what you call yeah. an odd couple. Yes. Yeah. No. It's. Uh... Yeah, I mean, and again, it's another reason why one should take a certain, um, uh, one should measure one's understanding of Henry Kissinger's words carefully. Yes, he did call him very dangerous. I mean, he went to the 68 convention, was deeply disappointed that Nixon won, um, and uh, or that Nixon won the nomination. But then almost immediately, he tried to play for either a job in the Nixon or Humphrey administrations by basically sort of uh, trying to uh, triangulate his position between the two. So he was, uh, you know, he was definitely, his, his personal ambition was stronger than maybe his the consistency of his political views. He was praised as a miracle worker for his peacemaking efforts in the Middle East, his pursuit of detente mm -hmm. with the Soviet Union, negotiations of a for an end to the war in Vietnam, a secret plan to open the United States to China. But the Vietnam War didn't end well. And, and don't those other situations <laughs> remain unresolved to this day? Well, yes, but foreign policy really is not a, uh, it's not uh, an arena in which one reaches to any sort of ultimate goals and things get settled and then there's nothing else. One of Kissinger's more famous quotations is that each foreign policy success is a ticket to another problem or a ticket to another issue. Um, if you achieve something, you had, as, as Kissinger did in the Middle East, for example, in getting the disengagement agreements with Egypt and Syria, um, almost immediately then the question was raised about a Palestinian homeland and about other issues. So it's not as if, uh, if a foreign policy is endless. Uh, this is one of the analogies that I think is incorrect about thinking foreign policy is somewhat static. It's much more in motion. It's more like guiding a, a ship uh, in, in turbulent waters than it is in building uh, an architecture or building of some sort or creating a structure of some type. His action For his actions negotiating a ceasefire in Vietnam, he jointly received the 1973 Nobel Peace Prize. But didn't two members of mm -hmm. the committee resign in protest? Yes. Yeah. No, it was not a uh, uh, it was a, a, a controversial decision. And um, there's a famous line that Thomas, I think it was Tom Lear, the, the satirist that, that the, mm -hmm. the satire had been uh, lost now that Henry Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize. So uh, it was very controversial at the time, um, although it certainly um, Kissinger was at the time he received it, was involved in the Middle East peace process, and many Americans, it, it certainly um, was seen as a part of his favorability. And as, as you well remember, I mean, he was very esteemed by most Americans for that period in the 70s when he was seen as sort of indispensable for American foreign policy. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and we're also streaming at WBAI.org. Um, I'm speaking with Thomas A. Schwartz, whose latest book is Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography published by Hill and Wang. You conclude that when Kissinger was, was formulating and implementing U.S. foreign policy during uh, 1969 through 1976, uh, quote, domestic political advantage and personal ambition trumped grand strategy and the national interest. But isn't it true that a statesman who fails to consider domestic politics in, in formulating and implementing foreign policy is, is going to be doomed to failure? 
Um, yes. And what I'm getting at, though, is that I don't think I think I think there always is a mixture of motives and developments. And at some points, yes, grand strategy uh, is is significant, but but the domestic politics have to be considered. And I guess the 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 attempt here is to to get at the point that domestic politics are always part of any successful foreign policy, and that if we want to understand what makes for a successful foreign policy, we have to understand its impact and the influence of domestic politics as well. Is it just coincidental that as the Watergate hearings heated up in the summer of 1973, Nixon decided to replace Secretary of State William Rogers with Kissinger? Did he seek? Did Kissinger see himself as as a, a distraction from the Watergate scandal? Well, here I would make the case that this is this is actually rather rather an interesting aspect of it is that Nixon did not want to appoint Kissinger Secretary of State. He liked to use him as national security advisor because the national security advisor only answers to the constituency of the president. He can be fired by mm -hmm. the president. Um, in a way that the Secretary of State, uh, who also has a constituency in Congress and the rest, is not as vulnerable. And uh, he didn't want to appoint him Secretary of State, but Kissinger threatened, in effect, uh, to, to leave the administration during the Watergate period. And Nixon believed that Kissinger's successes would convince or was part of his argument for why Watergate was not as important. And so, in effect, he uh, he promoted Kissinger to Secretary of State to keep him in the administration because he was certain that with Kissinger there, the Congress would never impeach him. And also uh, that Kissinger would join him in uh, keeping uh, the other people in the State Department kind of out of the loop. Well, yes, in effect, yes, that the Kissinger, that he could count on Kissinger's foreign policy, that the two, the two of them had a similar worldview and that Kissinger commanding the State Department would, in effect, allow that. But it's also clear Nixon's, Nixon's calculations were that with Kissinger there and the success of what was perceived then as the very successful foreign policy of Nixon and Kissinger, that this would deter the Congress and the Senate from uh, really considering replacing Nixon. And in the, in the end, of course, the, the real problem was that Nixon became replaceable, whereas Kissinger would stay mm -hmm. on. With Gerald Ford. And the first time yeah. I interviewed him was to discuss his book about his years with, with Gerald Ford. And I asked him mm -hmm. whether when Indonesia's Suharto met with him and Ford in Jakarta on December 6, 1975, which was one day before the Indonesian invasion of East Timor, were they informed about the impending invasion? And he answered, why should they? Such a small country, just 800,000 people. And I said, one quarter of whom were killed as a result, Dr. Kissinger. And then he gave me this fishy-eyed stare and said, you have a very strange view of politics. So uh, that was a very <laughs> real politique moment for me. That was, yes, yeah, yeah. You devote um, that, just one page to the East Timor takeover. Was I making too much of it? No, I, you know, obviously that's an important issue. Um, I think the, the, the thing was that the United States, uh, I, I put it in the context, I could have devoted a lot more attention to it. Um, I think it's, it's simply that the United States by that point in Southeast Asia had largely decided it was going to ignore the domestic behavior of its allies. Indonesia was considered an important ally. The United States had lost in Vietnam. 
It uh, appeared to be on the retreat in the area. And uh, Suharto pretty much had a blank check on what he wanted to do. And I think Kissinger's response to your question sort of indicates that. And they also cast a blind eye to what was going on uh, in Bangladesh. Uh, we supported Pakistan despite the genocide mm -hmm. that was being perpetrated there. Didn't Kissinger sneer at people who bleed for the dying Bengalis? Uh, again, I, I, I think uh, he certainly expressed, he, there is a callousness at times to his comments there. Uh, you know that part of the reason for the uh, tilt toward Pakistan was the connection between Pakistan and the China initiative, that Pakistan was serving as a mediator. And so in the principles of realpolitik, the idea was to keep uh, Pakistan engaged. And um, the Nixon, Kissinger, and Nixon, of course, had no real interest in the area as well. So Kissinger was a dutiful courtier in that, in that case. He's been criticized from both the left and from the right for his failing to promote human rights and for aligning the United mm -hmm. States with dictators and unsavory regimes uh, like the Shah in Iran, Pinochet in, in mm -hmm. Chile, the apartheid regimes in South Africa and Rhodesia. So was it all a matter of real politique? Um, yes, in part. It's a, it's a, a partly a, a question of uh, what uh, uh, Kissinger's, the calculation overall of the confrontation with the Soviet Union, which dominated uh, American thinking during that time. Um, the, uh, the, the, the biggest problem, as Kissinger and Nixon saw it, and what was still largely a consensus among American foreign policy leaders during this period, was that the overall issue was the confrontation and competition with the Soviet Union. And so the question of how you deal with allies, how you dealt with unsavory um, regimes if they were on your side, was always filtered through that perspective of how, what was the situation, how would this affect the larger um, competition with the Soviet Union, which was seen as more central. And certainly, I think, you know, you can look back and see that we made too many compromises, but that, to explain it, to explain in part why there's less of this uh, 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 insistence on human rights issues, I think one has to recognize that the Cold War was the dominant concern. And uh, Kissinger and Nixon uh, accomplished certain things in matters like the opening to China, the use of triangular diplomacy with China and the Soviet Union. Uh, be, that was a way of, of dealing with uh, two communist rivals and and trying to find a mm -hmm. way to to uh, to establish relations reasonable relations with both of them at the same time, but keep them from each other. Yeah. Right. No, and that was I, I think in terms of geopolitical realism, and as well as popularity in in domestic politics, the the initiative toward China was extraordinarily popular. But the idea was breaking up the Sino-Soviet bloc, this, what was seen as this enormously populated uh, 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 communist bloc that opposed the United States was seen as a, a very important uh, action by the United States to be closer to each of them than they were to each other, in effect to create another security concern for the Soviet Union really on its border. Uh, this played a role in the larger um, working out of the Cold War, um, even though, um, as, as, as your question gets at, and, and certainly your previous question gets at, it didn't really take much consideration of human rights. How uh, good was he as an administrator, the, the head 
of the uh, very probably one of the most important departments in in the government, other than uh, the White House. Uh, you are you're critical of his involvement in the FBI's wiretapping of a few of his assistants who were suspected mm -hmm. of leaks during the Vietnam War. Now, I, I guess right. uh, leaks continue to be a concern. Maybe every administration worries about them. Oh, they all have. They all have. Obviously, it's, it's a part of the game in Washington, and it was a huge issue. And, and I think there is, a, there's slight, there is a difference between the way Kissinger handled the National Security um, uh, Council, where he, he expanded it greatly, but then also was terrible at administering it, really had to rely largely on Al Haig, who was a much more disciplined figure who administered the National Security Council. But when Kissinger transitions to state, he's, he's not... Uh, his his concerns are less about leaks, although he does worry. He does complain about it in the State Department meetings, uh, but he seems to have been much better at handling state than he was at the National Security Council. You write that you use two major sources that haven't been used as extensively in earlier mm -hmm. looks at Kissinger. Um, are the are the Nixon tapes, which began in February 1971 and lasted? Uh, until July 1973, now fully accessible uh, to anyone who wants yes, to, to do research. Yes. So they, what do we learn? From... Are, Go ahead. Almost fully, almost fully accessible. There are some. There are still some uh, limitations where um, different tapes, if they're, they're mentioning people who are living uh, in particular contexts, there's personal deletions considering the Nixon family and other things. But they are almost all now uh, available and actually accessible uh, to look at on the Nixon Library webpage. They've, man, they've done a very good job of putting them up. Um, they are time-consuming beyond anything. That's one reason why it took so long to write this book. They t it takes a long time to listen to tapes, and they've not been transcribed in any systematic fashion yet, um, although there have been a couple of books by Doug, Douglas Brinkley and, um, and Luke Nichter who have, have put together uh, bits and pieces of the tapes. Um, and they, they are a really absolutely crucial source, and they really provide you a sense of how things actually take place within the Nixon White House as compared to, you might say, a more, the more theoretical or the memoir approaches of Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, and they, they are, uh, I think, a goldmine, uh, and they are the reason, of course, that Nixon's uh, fate is the reason we don't have those types of sources for future administrations, which I, I think is a, def uh, a definite shame. So we get a very different picture of Kissinger from the tapes than mm -hmm. we get from the, from the way that he portrayed himself in his memoirs? I think we get certainly a more nuanced picture. Uh, Kissinger's portrayal in his memoirs uh, does not often include some of the ways in which he went about manipulating Nixon, some of the excessive praise, uh, some of the uh, conversations that they had um, uh, in a way the fact that they talked quite directly about domestic politics and some of the issues related to Vietnam and the whole idea of a decent interval in settling the Vietnam War, that sort of thing is not really clear in the Nixon mem in the Kissinger memoirs. So yes, they certainly give us uh, added dimensions to the memoirs um, that you can you can really look at looking at both. There is Kissinger does, is not always deceptive, or he's not all he, he. It's just that that fills in. Uh, many gaps that are not in the memoirs. And you say your second uh, news source were recordings of the mm -hmm. evening news uh, since August 1968 mm -hmm. that were in the Vanderbilt Television News Archives. 
Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, in those days, Americans mostly got their news from watching uh, the the big three network news shows. So, um, mm-hmm. how how does uh, Kissinger come across at that uh, on those shows? Uh, uh, he, he, I, I know he's been often been called the the first celebrity diplomat. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I, I think, that, I mean, this is an extraordinary archive. It came about accidentally uh, in part because uh, a Vanderbilt alumnus who thought the evening news was actually biased and wanted to create a, an archive to actually study it. Um, but Kissinger comes across, he's introduced to the American people in January or in uh, December of 1968 when Nixon has a press conference. And then he's not really very uh, often discussed in the first couple of years of the administration, but then slowly he becomes an increasingly dominant figure um, until, of course, his famous Pieces at Hand news conference in October of 1972. The first time he's actually allowed to be uh, the audio from his press conference is actually allowed. The Nixon people thought that he sounded too—they they didn't think he—they he, sounded, he sounded too foreign, and they um, restricted audio of his press conferences beforehand. Uh, until October of 72. And then during the uh, second Nixon term and then the Ford term, he becomes the dominant presence on foreign policy issues on the evening news and really cultivates uh, the uh, ways in which the evening news reports him uh, giving interviews with the major anchors, uh, being featured in in, uh, extensive broad uh, 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 reports and the rest. I even experienced that to some degree when he returned to uh, my show. Uh, I assumed that he wasn't mm-hmm. going to do that after uh, we had also discussed Chile and a whole bunch of other things that made yep. him uncomfortable. Yep. But as he was settling into his seat before the interview about his book about China, he said, I'm here because my physical therapist is your biggest fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. Which yeah. was rather yeah. charming. Well, yes. Well, I, I think actually it should not be underestimated that Henry Kissinger can be, when he turns it out, an extraordinarily charming man. Um, and I experienced only a little bit of that in my interview, but it, it is clearly he does have that ability. He does get, as uh, uh, Gerald Ford once called him, the most thin-skinned figure in mm-hmm. American public life. And he is very thin-skinned about criticism, and, and uh, uh, he doesn't take well to, to things like some of the questions maybe you posed. Uh, but he uh, he can be extraordinarily charming. You note that the media recognized that Kissinger had a complicated relationship with Nixon. Their worldviews mm-hmm. were similar, but their personalities were very different. So, so the the national media loved Kissinger in part because they hated Nixon. Yes. Yeah. No. I think I think there was a way in which. Kissinger was so much better at dealing with reporters, and he cultivated this. He talked to journalists frequently. He leaked stories. Uh, he favored certain journalists. He used leaks um, strategically. He uh, um, uh, he also he, he he was able to speak their language. I mean, the fact that he had been a professor at Harvard, that he had such intellectual firepower, they were impressed by him. They were they, they oftentimes I think really in awe. Um, and uh, you, but you also get the sense that he, he cultivated this, and the fact that Nixon held so much of the media in contempt and really didn't like and had them on his enemies list, I think made the contrast even more striking. Uh, so we have to take a little break, but uh, okay. 
when we come, but stay with us because after I take care of a little bit of WBAI business, uh, I want to pick up on this conversation. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming at WBAI.org. Before we return to my conversation with Thomas A. Schwartz, I need to take a minute to ask you to consider contributing to the station to help us get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. We need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopate at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going to our website, give to wbai.org, that's give, and then the number two, wbai.org, or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep these one-hour deep dives that we bring you on London Lopate at Large, live on WBAI, weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy. They're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. Anyone who signs up today to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at Large by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give2wbai.org, I'm very happy to say we'll receive a free copy of the book by my guest, Thomas A. Schwartz, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a Political biography as our way of saying thanks for being among the listeners who sponsor this show. Uh, you are our only sponsors, in fact, is because the station doesn't receive foundation grants or corporate sponsorships of any kind. So whatever level you feel comfortable contributing at, the important thing is that you step up now to show that support so we can continue to bring you these long-form interviews on topics that we hope will be of interest to you. Again, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and a big thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support the show and the station. Your fellow listeners um, have, uh, uh, so, some of your fellow listeners have already come through in a state in, in this time of need. Uh, so if you haven't already, why not make that call now? Again, 516-620-3602 or go to give2wbai.org and we hope that you'll sign up to become a BAI buddy. And we're back now with my guest, Thomas A. Schwartz, who is the, a distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University, author of um, three books on American um, diplomacy, and also uh, president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Um, well, I was. The, I was. <laughs> you were. Yeah. You were. No more. I were. Too I busy were. working on this no book? More. No, no. It's, a, it's only a one year. It, it was a, a wonderful thing to do, but you only do it for one year, um, as most academic uh, groups do. So. Now, let's talk a bit about... Um, the uh what his the, what he did in the middle east uh mm -hmm. first of all i gather that nixon was uncomfortable having him play a role there because he's jewish that's right that's right nixon nixon was quite direct about this 
Um, and we have some conversations on the tape on tapes on this too, that it's impossible. He didn't think Henry, as he put it, could be objective about the Middle East. And at times Nixon is, you know, he mentions the Holocaust and he says, how could he be objective? Uh, you know, he can't really see this. On the other hand, uh, Nixon gradually uh, despaired of the State Department's role and then ended up putting Kissinger in charge of the Middle East in the beginning of 1973 and uh, to begin a process of trying to get some types of negotiation going even before uh, the Yom Kippur War in October. Was it to some degree meant to be a distraction because uh, there had been uh, the the invasions of Cambodia and Laos had led to domestic protests? Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, by shifting the focus to the Middle East and the war of attrition between Israel and Egypt, were they uh, in a way uh, deflecting uh, some of that criticism? I don't think that's as, as central. Uh, the chronology is complicated, but basically you could make the case that the Americans were so obsessed with Cambodia and Laos in 1970 that they missed the fact that the Soviets had 25,000 or even more uh, advisors in Egypt. The Soviets had actually gotten very heavily involved with Egypt during this period of the War of Attrition. And it, the U.S. only shifted back uh, toward the uh, September of 1970 uh, toward uh, and when particularly when the dramatic hijacking, hijackings took place and King Hussein came under assault from the Palestinian Liberation Organization, so it's 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 less. I think they were looking at the distractions and the fact that the world was moving on, and they had to face the problem that the Middle East, the Soviets had had entered quite seriously, and uh, that there were there was a real problem that um, uh, the pro-American regime in Jordan might be overthrown. Didn't Kissinger cause some controversy in June 1970 when he said the U.S. wanted to expel the Soviets from the region? Mm -hmm. Would we be able he to did. expel did. the Soviet Union? Yeah, no, this is actually, it's not a frequently uh, a noted point about in his background, but he actually did. He gave a background briefing saying this was the goal. Uh, Nixon almost immediately softened it, um, saying, no, we, we're not looking to do this. But ultimately, that was what Kissinger did succeed in doing, was pushing the Soviet Union out of the Middle East uh, in his diplomacy and efforts in establishing really a, a situation in which the United States was the key power broker there. How important was Kissinger in opening up uh, China to the United States? Uh, did, <laughs> did he pretty much pull that off by himself? No, no, no. I, I, I make the case in the book that this is really a Nixon idea uh, from the very beginning. Kissinger uh, expressed sometimes humorously and sarcastically uh, uh, to Al Haig and to others uh, saying, I think this is, you know, the, the boss is, is lost it on this one, especially when Nixon would talk about uh, having a goal of visiting China before uh, he died or things like that. Um, no, I think this was a Nixon initiative. Kissinger converts to it. I would make the case in August of 1969 when uh, the Soviets begin uh, sort of low-level discussions about whether, what the United States policy would be if they launched a preemptive strike to destroy Chinese nuclear facilities and possibly overturn the government there. And uh, when Kissinger sees that the Soviets are so obsessed and worried about China that they might try to get the United States uh, to, to exceed in that, I think he becomes certain that Nixon's on to something, that this is something that they need to explore and, and try to uh, carry out. But it was really complicated. Kissinger made two trips to the People's Republic of China in July and October mm -hmm. 1971, the first one in secret, mm -hmm. 
to confer with yes. Premier Zhou Enlai. Uh, uh, now, there was a the whole matter of, of Taiwan uh, that was a major concern to Beijing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how did Kissinger mm -hmm. handle that? Well, it's very interesting to look back at those negotiations. Um, the Chinese wanted the negotiations to be solely about Taiwan, or at least that's the way they expressed it. I think Kissinger was uh, Kissinger was perceptive enough to recognize that the Chinese had larger issues in mind as well, particularly their concern about Soviet uh, possible Soviet action against them, so that he could, uh, in effect, what he told them when he went over there is, look, our position in Taiwan is unusual. And remember, at the time, Taiwan was a dictatorship. It was not a democracy. The United States did have military forces there. But what Kissinger implied to the Chinese is that the United States uh, only had its forces there largely because of the Vietnam War, and that if the Chinese would help settle the Vietnam War, the United States would gradually disengage from Taiwan. He was very careful, though, in what he said about it. He knew that the politics of Taiwan were particularly difficult in the United States. Uh, but he did not he, – he allowed the Chinese to basically take a face-saving way of looking at Taiwan. Ultimately, the whole idea that uh, of the Shanghai communique where both nations uh, – the United States simply recognizes that both Taiwan and uh, communist China believe there is only one China. And so the United States recognizes there's one China was a way around uh, the commitments that the United States had made to the defense of Taiwan. At the same time, Kissinger told Joe and I that, according to a public opinion poll, 62% of Americans wanted Taiwan to remain in, uh, a UN member, and he asked them to consider mm -hmm. the, the two Chinas compromise to avoid offending American right. public opinion. That was a yes. clever yeah. dipl diplomacy. No, On the other hand, you know, Kissinger, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, Kissinger often used uh, at one point, he, he told um, he, one of the things when he went over to China was to tell them not to invite a lot of Democrats over before Nixon came, because Nixon wanted the wanted the appearance, and it was a political thing. So Kissinger was quite blunt at times about talking politics to the Chinese and getting them the sense of how the American political system worked. So he uh, that doesn't mean that uh, your what you reference to is not unusual for him. Now, Nixon and Kissinger inherited a real mess in Vietnam, but mm -hmm. uh, and and they are credited, I guess, with ending that war uh, through Vietnamization. But um, my sense of it is that it was a it really ended in a very bad way. Uh, that nobody mm -hmm. should want to have any credit for what finally happened. Am mm -hmm. I wrong? Yeah. No. I. No, I don't think so. I think, I think Vietnam emerges more and more as one of the single greatest tragedies in the American foreign policy uh, history. Um, it uh, even today, I mean, we we recognize. I mean, Vietnam is now our ally against China, not not formally, of course, but we're we're dealing with Vietnam. And and couldn't this have happened or sooner? I mean, there's all sorts of explanations. But no, I don't think there's a great deal of credit there. Nixon and Kissinger and Kissinger's defense is that he felt that the United States had to get out in a way that didn't destroy its credibility. And, and yes, a lot of people are quite skeptical about the value of credibility in foreign policy, but it is an issue. And uh, Nixon and Kissinger certainly believed it. And for the most part, most Americans did not want what ultimately happened to happen, at least in 1968, 69. 
eventually the one one result was that they did accept it in 75 after the United States did finally get its prisoners of war out and had been gone for two years but it's not a it's not a uh, it, it ended very badly as you as you point out did Watergate seal South Vietnam's fate because it weakened executive power and then the the uh, democratically controlled Congress cut off funding for for the, um, the uh, yeah. It is worth at least that that is Kissinger's defense. And to a certain extent, there's a little bit of blame shifting uh, he does there. I mean, Kissinger was not convinced that Vietnam, South Vietnam would last very long anyway, even if there had been no Watergate. I think what he what he rec what what did the, the what we know now from some of the records and materials that have come out is that the North Vietnamese did really fear. Nixon, in the sense of they worried about his reactions. And it wasn't exactly the madman theory, but he had bombed North Vietnam quite viciously in December of 72 to get an agreement. And in a way, it's it, the fact that he was removed did embolden North Vietnam to undertake its offensive much sooner. Uh, but Nixon and Kissinger, on the whole, did think that communism probably would eventually take over Vietnam. Were his personal ambitions a factor? Uh, you have uh, some illustrations in your book, including uh, a number of covers of Time and Newsweek uh, mm -hmm. with Kissinger on them. And one, and one of them uh, depicts Kissinger as Superman. Right. right. No, I, I think he was... He was extraordinarily celebrated. That particular magazine that you mentioned uh, came after he uh, managed to negotiate the Israeli-Syrian disengagement agreement in June of 1974, and uh, people didn't think you could get an agreement between Israel and Syria. And I think Kissinger's success there uh, was during the Watergate period and during some other—this was also the period of the oil crisis. There was a lot of bad news among uh, if, that Americans were suffering from a recession and inflation. And Kissinger's success there was highlighted, and, and certainly he was celebrated for being able to um, peacefully, seemingly peacefully, settle an issue in the Middle East. How does he describe all of that in his memoirs that he wrote after he uh, left Washington? Mm -hmm. Well, the memoirs are fascinating. I mean, they're they're an extraordinary bit. And in a way, um, I'd use the comparison with Winston Churchill, who said that history will be kind to me because I'll write it. And in uh -huh. a way, Kissinger was trying to um, write the history. And it, it is they are really quite extraordinary works, and they're very uh, they're very persuasive um, in a sense in his depiction of his uh, negotiations with Sadat, with Hafez Assad in Syria, with uh, Golda Meir. Um, fascinating uh, reads. Now, there's more complex stuff that we know now from the documents, and there's a much – Kissinger shaded some of what he did um, in terms of the ways in which he could uh, at times present himself as much more sympathetic to each side's cause when he was with them than he really was, and that there's, uh, there's some artifice in, in all of that. But nevertheless, they're very – uh, they certainly pers uh, uh, personify or certainly give you that sense of uh, an American diplomat really um, uh, achieving uh, extraordinary uh, success uh, in mediating uh, an intractable conflict. So I think that certainly the, the memoirs are very, very positive, uh, and you have to balance against them tapes and other materials and documents uh, uh, to get a, a better read um, on what happened.
After he left government, he formed Kissinger Associates. What was, uh, mm -hmm. it's a consulting firm. What, what does it do? It provides advice to uh, major corporations about international issues, um, concerns, policies, American policies, um, uh, domestic political developments in other countries. Uh, it, it, it is, uh, in a way, a kind of threat assessment or threat or risk management approach in terms of understanding um, decisions related to uh, foreign trade and investment that large companies are making. Um, I did not spend a great deal of time in my book writing about it because those are the records that will be the task of a future biographer who will have access to the to the uh, closed Kissinger papers at Yale University uh, probably some 30 or 40 years from now um, before they are all fully available to really understand or study those issues. But didn't he long to return to power? Uh, mm hmm Mm -hmm. uh, it's, yeah. it, now, w was was it likely he did give advice to presidents of both political parties? What did they consult with him on? Um, presidents uh, started from the very beginning. I mean, Jimmy Carter, who was not necessarily a fan of Kissinger's, uh, needed Kissinger for his Panama Canal Treaty uh, to try and help with the SALT II um, ratifications, all of these things. The presidents at least initially, they thought Kissinger, Kissinger also commanded political support, that they could get Kissinger behind them. The problem was Kissinger was deeply distrusted by the, the, the right wing of the Republican Party, particularly um, uh, many of those who were on, even to the right of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan actually liked Henry Kissinger. They, they actually were quite cordial to each other, and Reagan brought him in, particularly on questions related to the Soviet Union in the Middle East as an informal advisor. Kissinger, Reagan just did not feel he could appoint Kissinger to any major position, and the only one he did give him was the Central American Commission in the 1980s as a way of trying to craft a bipartisan con consensus at a time when the policy was very controversial. But that was a very brief appointment. And for the most part, presidents feared that Henry Kissinger, you bring Henry Kissinger in, he comes to dominate situations, and he takes away from your authority. So even though Kissinger, I think, longed to become Secretary of State again and certainly hoped that, for example, George H.W. Bush might consider appointing him in 1989, um, he never, never regained that power. Why did conservatives uh, distrust him? Because of detente and the opening of China? More detente than the opening with China. Detente, uh, they really distrusted. They, they felt that Kissinger had been too weak in the negotiations on SALT II, that he was too um, willing to uh, uh, try to reach an agreement without being as concerned about some of the details and the ways in which the Soviet Union, as they saw it, was advancing. Um, they thought that he was too willing to give um, uh, and concede Soviet control over Eastern Europe. Um, the famous uh, Sonnenfeld uh, doctrine, which Kissinger said there had been a doctrine that would not have been named after my assistant, Albert Sonnenfeld, but it was this idea that the U.S. had, had given up on Eastern Europe. Um, that was uh, the famous gaffe that Gerald Ford made in the 76th debate. But th there was this suspicion, particularly someone like Jesse Helms, who was rising in power on the right, that Kissinger just didn't have any morals uh, and was not as convinced an anti-communist, as uh, they believed that there needed to be in American power. Well, that doesn't seem to bother people on the right today, because as I mentioned earlier, uh, he's been criticized for 
um, his uh, aligning the United States with the Shah of Iran, Pinochet in Chile, right. in fact, uh, the role that uh, the United States played in the overthrow of Allende, um, the, uh, the apartheid regimes in South Africa and Rhodesia. So have we mm -hmm. changed in our attitudes about uh, whether how we deal with authoritarian governments? Now we seem to be friendly with Turkey, with, with Russia, <laughs> with uh, on and off with China? Well, yes, the, the Trump administration certainly has no truck with uh, human rights issues. And so in a way, uh, it's kind of a, 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 an exaggerated emphasis on uh, the, the, the virtues of authoritarians. Kissinger didn't necessarily proclaim their virtues. I see he saw them as a, as a necessity, not necessarily that they were, they were uh, wonderful figures, and, and, and he wouldn't have complimented them necessarily in the way President Trump does. But I do think Kissinger's own position, certainly some of his uh, more, uh, uh, some of his foreign policy attitudes, they're, they're much more now vulnerable on the left. And Kissinger, and I track in my, my uh, last chapter, the degree to which he became really a, uh, a target of the left. Partly uh, the Christopher Hitchens book was, of course, central to that and its indictment of Kissinger. And uh, uh, he also became much more closely associated with Republican presidents, although he, of course, probably was would have more favored Hillary Clinton in 2016 than yeah. Donald Trump, which is ironic, I think. So. And you also talk about him appearing on Stephen Colbert's show when he was on Comedy yeah. Central. Colbert uh, definitely is not a conservative, although he was playing a conservative on those shows. Right. He's 97 now. Uh, we don't see much of him mm -hmm. anymore. Has he slowed down? Mm -hmm. Um, the last uh, official piece I saw was a Wall Street Journal uh, piece, and he has been writing for the journal back in April about the degree to which the pandemic, his assessment that the pandemic would affect international affairs. And he has been writing uh, on, uh, on issues of artificial intelligence and its, its impact on, on foreign policy. So he still maintains activity, and uh, he uh, obviously, uh, like many others in that age group, is very vulnerable and so probably has been very careful about where he has been um, in the last few months. But he uh, he retains, uh, at least from what I, I hear, a, 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 a remarkable intellectual vitality. He has been quoted a bit about China, and uh, particularly the uh, quote that, that's used frequently is that we are in the foothills of a new Cold War, um, his own concern that we may be heading uh, toward a confrontation with China and uh, worries about that. Thomas A. Schwartz's book, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a political biography published by Hill and Wang. Thank you so much for being on our show. Well, thank and you that, very much for having me on the show. And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else that podcasts are available. You can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Also, if there's anything you'd like to tell me about any of our shows, or if you'd just like to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Remember, if you become a member of our show today, you can receive a free copy of Thomas Schwartz's Henry Kissinger in American Power, a political biography. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Dimitri Pappas and Hudson Valley of Hudson Valley Mushrooms and ecologist Steve Gabriel will tell us everything you've ever wanted to know about mushrooms. See you then.